heroes. Everyone has heroes. And I'm not talking about superheroes, I'm talking about the people that you look up to. And uh, I'd start this morning by asking you, who is that person for you? Or who are those people that you look up to, that you'd like to emulate, that you would like to be like? You know, whenever you're leading something, one of the things that actually happens is uh, there's some people that kind of turn you into a little bit of a hero, if you're a good leader, that is. Uh, You know, you can talk all you want about being fallen and being weak, uh, but at the end of the day, people actually are looking for heroes that they can look up to and emulate. I remember talking to um, uh, a a wise leader in the early days of the Project Church, and I said, look, I don't don't want to be a hero, I don't want to be anyone's hero, I'm, I'm weak, I can't pull stuff together, and he goes, yeah, he goes, I get that, and he said, that's an important part of leadership in the church, is that uh, you, you need to be humble, you need to be open about the fact that you're a bit of a wreck. He said, but you know what? People are also looking for a hero to follow, someone to actually look up to, someone that they can kind of emulate. And I used to have uh, conversations with students at the school here, actually, about their heroes and what constitutes a hero. And typically what would actually happen is uh, younger males would say things like, Someone who, they would talk about someone who did some kind of death-defying stunt. Just go, they are, they are like my hero. They're a legend. Like they, they just, they're so heroic, the stunt that they just pulled. And usually it was, it was something brave. It was something captured on GoPro or some other kind of digital recording camera. And it usually had something to do with sport somewhere and there's always a a number of these kind of people in every generation who do crazy things like trusty demons of dirt kind of crazy things and one of the questions I used to follow up with is I would say to them uh, do you think that they are a hero in the same way that someone else is a hero who gives their life for someone and at that point, we started having a good conversation, right? Because they're just going, well, okay, well, yeah, no, they're kind of a hero, but no, they're not in the same kind of category. And this was one of the uh, fellows that I, uh, I used to put up in front of them when we were having this uh, conversation. His name is Livio Labrescu. Now, this, this guy was a teacher at Virginia Tech. And some of you would remember back in 2007 that a shooter went in and shot a whole bunch of people in 2007. Now, when they came to Livio's room or hall, Livio held the door shut so his kids could actually get out. And he got killed. He got killed. He got shot and killed during the attack. And see, that's a whole other kind of hero, isn't it? At that point. Like we're not talking about someone doing some kind of stunt on a motorbike at this point in time. We're talking about someone who actually laid it down. And it's like, man, like I, don't, I don't even almost want to use the same word to describe someone pulling a stunt on a motorbike with this guy who actually held the door shut and ended up getting shot and killed so his kids could get out of the room. His students could get out. And it raises the question, right? Can you be a hero if you do it for your own ends? That's a good question. It's not one that we're going to spend lots of time talking about today, but that's a good question. Well, maybe you kind of can. But being a hero for someone else is a whole different category, isn't it? You know, a hero is someone who's admired for their courage, 
their outstanding achievements, their noble qualities. And the reality is that people, humans, love to have heroes because heroes inspire people. They look up to them. They go, that's someone that I would actually want to be like. I would even be happy to be able to talk like them. Have you noticed that? I mean, that would be something that I've heard in my lifetime as a teacher is these kids would find something that someone that they would really admire and say, what do we need to do? Well, we need to emulate. We need to copy and imitate the hero. I want to do what they do. You know, and some of this, I think, can be a misplaced desire for a saviour. It speaks to our needs and our struggles. But there's a lot to like about having someone to look up to, isn't there? There's a lot to like about it. And we, I mean, everyone's a fallen hero in some respects. I mean, that's it's been the interesting thing with superhero movies recently, hasn't it? I mean, they're really emphasising the fallen nature of the superheroes uh, more and more. But there's a lot to like about having a hero and you just go that is someone that I'd like to imitate and emulate heroes in some sense can actually lead us into personal transformation can't they because we look at it and just go that's what I'd like to be like who who's your hero who are your heroes Would Stephen, that we just read in Acts chapter 6 and 7, rate as a hero? Would he? Is he in your list? I'm not saying he has to be, I'm just saying, is he in your list of heroes that you would want to emulate? Today, it's a long, long passage, and so what I'm actually going to do today is we're going to do a little bit of a character study. Uh, We're just going to look at Stephen as a person and uh, draw some conclusions from that. What do we know about Stephen from the text? Well, we can see with Stephen that what's actually going on in this part of the Bible is that he's doing some signs and wonders, people are having arguments with him, they fabricate some stuff that they say he's saying, which he's not saying, to get him into trouble. He ends up getting dragged before the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, I should say. They ask him to defend himself, that's Acts chapter 7, verse 1, uh, and he spins it. Like a good politician, doesn't he? So I'm not going to answer the question you asked, I'm going to answer the question you should have asked, right? Which is kind of what Stephen does. And he actually says they're the ones that are in the wrong and they're the ones that should be on trial, not him. And the whole scene, I think, as I read this, is like watching a car accident. Have you ever had that experience? It's like everything is in slow motion and there's nothing that you can do to stop it. Like you watch this whole thing in Acts 6 and 7 and it's just, you kind of can see where the whole thing's going. In this passage, there's three things, uh, at least I think that we can see here. We see a good man and we see how good people get in the way and we also see that when good people get in the way, what you do is you get rid of good people. That's what you do. So let's have a look at the first one, a good man. Have a look at Stephen. What can we know of him from Acts What's he like? Well, you know what we find out about Stephen. The first thing here is if you go to Acts 6 verse 3, the qualifications for being uh, someone to go and look after the widows, which we looked at last week. Um, let me read verse six, uh, chapter 6 verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. And you know who gets picked? Stephen. So you know what? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's one of the, the persons of God which God has given to dwell in people who love him. 
And not only does Stephen, not only is Stephen full of the Spirit, but he's actually crazy, crazy wise. And there's some serious power here. Go down to verse nine and ten. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Listen to verse ten. For the, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Isn't this awesome? Like, would you not just want to have that kind of wisdom and be filled with the spirit like that? Like, he is just, you know, I, I think about an NFL field and a guy with the ball just running and dodging and he's, he's getting through everyone who's trying to take him out. And it, like, he, he scores a touchdown at the end, doesn't he? That's what verse 10 is. Like, he made it. Everyone was against him and he made it. There is so much wisdom that comes from the Spirit, isn't there? And we ought to depend on the Spirit some more. Luke, in his, in his Gospel, in chapter 21, 14 to 15, says, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And here it's happening. This is what the Spirit does, right? This is good stuff. So what should you do? Well, you should lock it in and go after the Spirit and get as much of Him as you can and be filled with Him and go after wisdom. True? Just get as much as you can. And I'll just ask you, how, how are you going with wisdom? You know, wisdom's not just about knowing and speaking rightly, it's about living rightly. That's what it's about. Are you up for that? Would you like to have that much wisdom so that people can't beat you down? I remember when I was a uh, really young taker, I think it may have even been when I was in primary school, the thought of being a really wise person, man, I just loved that thought. And from a really early age, I said, God, would you just make me someone who's wise? I just want to be wise. There's enough idiots in the world, right? I don't, we don't need any more. Don't be an idiot. Be wise. Let's go after that. But this is Stephen, right? Full of the Spirit and wisdom. Second thing, he's full of faith. Have a look at Acts 6, verse 5. And, when they, and what they said, this is back in last week's passage about the deacons being raised up, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. You know what faith is? Faith is trusting in God. Stephen had a reputation for the way that he trusted in God. That's a heck of a reputation, isn't it? I get that one. Get that one. Hey, he could be a good soccer player, or a good rugby player, or a good AFL player. He could be good at ten-pin bowling, which I would argue is not a sport, but some might. Okay, you could you could be good at lots of stuff, but get good at that one, right? This person is a person of faith who trusts God really really well here's the next one that we see about Stephen Stephen's full of God's grace and power have a look at uh, chapter 6 verse 8 and Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people now it sounds a lot like Jesus right Luke 4 verse 22 says this of Jesus and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth now this is an odd mix Putting grace and power together is an odd mix. You know, most of the time when we think about power, we just go, yeah, I could think of a few things I could do with that. 
you know, and most of the things that you probably are thinking about are some things that you think could get squared away in a judgmental kind of way, all right? I'm going to right some wrongs. But that's kind of not the mix that I think that we see here. This is grace and power mixed in together. This is not the expression of power that makes other people want to do away with you. This is an expression of power that draws other people to you. It's winsome. Would you like that? I, I think um, we could have a good conversation with any of you. I, I'm sure that you and I could have a good conversation at the end about people that you know who are very powerful and very gracious. And, and you're drawn to them. People are genuinely drawn to people that are powerfully gracious and graciously powerful. You know, God's grace was energising him and it was really winsome. It wasn't just raw power. It wasn't just irritating Christian. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Let's be honest. It's a whole genre of irritating Christian. This is like winsome, gracious power. That's what it is. I've seen people like this, lots of them, and who knows that Christianity needs more of them, yeah? Let's have more of those, graciously powerful people. What about this one? In terms of a character study, we're doing pretty well. 6 verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. What's he doing? He's speaking the truth about God. God's confirming the truth that he's speaking. There's signs and wonders happening. Anyone here like to do a few more signs and wonders? Yeah, like I'll be up for that. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, What about this one? Stephen uh, retained his poise under fire. Go to Acts chapter 6 verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Who knows it's really, really hard to keep your mind when everyone else is losing theirs. It is, right? That's like Super League kind of stuff, right? Like you can see this interaction with these opponents that they're losing their minds. There's a stitch up going on. There's false witnesses. They organise people to say things about Stephen which simply aren't true. Does it sound like anyone else you know? I mean, Jesus himself. They go crooked. He goes straight. That is awesome, isn't it? I mean, you look at that and you just go, yeah. I, that's where I want to be. I want to be able to be right in the midst of everything just going haywire and stay straight on, on, the, on the straight and narrow path that I'm meant to be going on. And here's uh, the last one I think we see is that he's really bold. I mean... We just read Acts 7. I mean, the last few verses of what we read, and he just like, bam, says, that's you. You are the people who resist the Holy Spirit and persecute the prophets. It's kind of like Stephen's going, oh, there's a fire and it's getting out of control. I've got a 44-gallon drum of petrol. Let's throw that on. That'll put it out. Although I, I think he knew it wasn't going to be putting it out. He calls it how he sees it and he speaks with divine authority. You know, you can see this. Uh, these are some of the notes that, that Luke kind of gives us about how there's kind of some divine authority going on uh, having the face of an angel. There's a bunch of references to him being like Jesus and being like Moses. 
is bold. You want to be bold? Some of you might hesitate at that and you go, I don't want to be bold. Do you want to be bold? Someone who's bold, who's gracious and powerful. Absolutely you do. Absolutely you do want to be that. You know, I'm not saying this in an absolute sense, but you know Stephen was a good man. He's a good man. You know, you look at what Stephen was like and you can see the way that the Spirit and the way that God has trained and shaped him. And he was just a good man. The Spirit fills him, it makes him wise, it emboldens him. God's doing signs and wonders through him. He gets involved with the widows and he helps them out. He's good at trusting in God. He's filled with grace, he's winsome, he's calm under the pump because he's trusting in God to help him to provide the answers. You know, at the end of the day, he's good because God's involved with him. That's why he's good. Here's the second thing today. Stephen was a good man, but here's the reality if you're a good man or a good woman. Good people get in the way. They just do. We, we live in a world where good and evil are at odds with one another. They just are. They're at war. And people in our world are committed to their particular course of action. And they're not just committed to it in their brains. They've got a heart allegiance to the direction that they're heading, to the thing that they're after. People are invested in things that they want and they like and they enjoy. Now what happens? Stephen comes before a group of people like that and he calls the Sanhedrin to change. Gets in the way. You know, even people who say they want to change often don't want to change when it starts affecting them. Has anyone noticed that? It's just kind of how it works. These are people just going, no, we think we're right and we're not going that way. There is a flow and a direction to the world on the surface and it's not in God's direction. Now, God steers events so they go the way that that he wants them to go, but the superficial movement is just not in God's direction. I want you to hear this this morning, is that good stands in the way of evil. It does. That's what it does. You know, there may be a time where evil's permitted to run its course, but even when it's permitted to run its course, the permission of it is for a greater good that good will win in the end. And I want you to hear me, truly good people will always get in the way. Are you comfortable with that? They'll oppose evil and bad things. Now, before you... I'm not thinking about placards, all right? And I'm not thinking about protesting on the street. Let me give you one example of... Because often that's what happens, right? You talk about this kind of stuff, people get in the way. It's like people just go, OK, we're going to protest. I'm going home, I'm making up some signs and we're going to go and protest down in Margaret Street in Toowoomba, all right? That's kind of, Christians kind of go there, right? Do you, know, do you know what one protest is in a really healthy way... One way to obstruct evil is, do you know what that is? Praying. Isn't it? Like that obstructs evil. That's, that's actually what you and I are called to. As good people, 
made good by God and being changed by God, God calls us to be obstructionists when it comes to evil. We're meant to get in the way of evil. I mean, some of you uh, went to the Emily's Voice dinner last night. That's, that's not, Emily's Voice is not like a, a placard thing about anti-abortion. It's like, we love life. That's what it is. Do you know what that is? That's obstructing evil. That's what it is. It's getting in the way. And do you know when you get in the way, it irritates people sometimes. This is a really well-known quote from... uh, It's attributed to Edmund Burke, but there's a fair bit of debate about whether he actually said it. But it doesn't matter. It's a good quote anyway. It's this one here. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Stephen got in the way. You know, I read that verse 10 from Acts 6 before. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He's doing signs and wonders. He's defending it. He's got this amazing wisdom. They accuse Stephen of blasphemy. He gets hauled in front of the Sanhedrin. You know, and it looks like he's, he's, well, he's hauled in front of the Sanhedrin by these people, the Hellenists, which are kind of the scattered Jews. And it even looks like there's a little bit of an agenda um, to the Hellenists in bringing him before the Sanhedrin because they were often accused of being of integrating too much with the world and, and, and taking on other ideas that they shouldn't have been taking on and other practices that they shouldn't have been taking on. So they bring him in and Stephen's been getting in the way. He's been doing good things. He hasn't been taking a backward step. He's been debating them. He's been silencing them. He gets hauled before the Sanhedrin. Now, I mentioned this before, but what's Stephen up to in his, in his talk? Is he defending himself? Well, he doesn't at all, really. He doesn't say sorry. He never apologises. What he is doing is putting the Sanhedrin on trial. That's what he's doing. He knows the biblical history. He knows his place in it. And he knows where the Sanhedrin are, the court of the day, with respect to that. And he says, you are the ones that are guilty. Stephen didn't do nothing. He showed that, that, that the people had rejected God all the way along and in true prophetic style, he pointed the finger at them and he said to them, this is 51 to 53, you can read it with me, you stiff-necked people. This goes right back to the golden calf, right? And a biblical concept that you become what you worship. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who receive, receive the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is a common thing throughout the Scriptures where uh, people just don't want to hear the truth. And so what they do is they kill the messengers. And he's actually saying to them, he's saying, You're, you do that. You actually don't want to hear from God. You, you are the ones that are breaking the Mosaic law, not me. And you know what? They don't want to hear it. You make it personal and look what happens. 
I'm going to read the uh, last section out of uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 54 to 60, which we didn't read. So I'd love it if you could uh, turn there in your Bibles and read it with me. Acts chapter 7, verse 54 to 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Can you imagine that? He's totally outnumbered. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Isn't that beautiful? And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, just pause for a moment there. Like, <laughs> can you just even imagine what that would have done to the Sanhedrin? He's saying that he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Like, that would have just blown apart, wouldn't it, at that point? It's just like, bam, like they just all would have just gone nuts about that. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice, you can imagine this, can't you? And they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Now, there's a question mark here whether proper judicial kind of process actually took place. All right? There's some... There's some <laughs> There's some hints here that there might have still been some judicial process because where we're going to go here is, is Stephen's about to get executed and the Sanhedrin officially actually doesn't have authority to execute someone without authority from the Romans. But it, it, I mean, there's stuff that points in the direction that they must have got authority and that it was a proper legal process, but there's other stuff like this where I just go, man, this is just out of control. This is out of control. Verse 58, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Not the marijuana version. And the witnesses, this is the hint that maybe there actually was a due process because the, the witnesses here were actually, you know what the witnesses' jobs were when you stone someone? Is their job was to knock the person to the ground and throw the first lot of stones at them. That's what their job was. And it was part of the process of executing someone correctly. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul and as they were stoning Stephen, we didn't get this read out before because this is brutal. This is really brutal. You know, what? if you ask me, well, what's stoning? Well, it's where you throw rocks at someone until they die. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is how it rolls. Good people come along. They get in the way of people who just want to do what they want to do and the next thing is you just need to get them out of the way. And they live out 
the very thing that Stephen spoke about in his, in his message, in his talk. You don't listen to God. They have a habit of getting rid of God's messages, messengers, and here they've done it again. Joseph's brothers hated him. Moses was rejected by the people. This is what Stephen says in his message. The prophets were rejected and killed, even though they were the ones delivering God's message. And Jesus was rejected and killed and he was taken out. This is a thing. If you're going to be a good person and you're going to do good things, part of what that means is you're actually going to get in the way of evil. And when you get in the way of evil, what happens next is anyone's guess. Because <laughs> one of the things that actually happens is evil people throw good people aside and they'll find ways to do it. Think about... Um, like you, you see this all over the place, Right? Like if I just said to you something like this, how many human rights activists have you heard of that have actually been taken out by people? Heaps of them. Apartheid, anti-war activists, American civil rights activists, human rights activists, writers, journalists, politicians. How many are there? Heaps of them. I mean, some of those South American countries that have got the big drug wars going on at the moment, like who wants to be a president in charge of that? at the moment and crack down on crime over there. You get in the way of evil and it's going to be coming for you. These are social justice concerns and they're good concerns. There was one group that I didn't mention and it was martyrs. Now we... When, when we talk about martyrs, we're talking about people giving their lives for other people. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about people blowing themselves up to kill other people. That is a whole different kind of martyrdom. And you, just, you need to know the church. The first 300 years of Christendom, people were getting martyred. They were being killed for what they believed. And the first 300 years of Islam was convert or die. They were killing. That's a massive difference. Massive difference. Stephen was the second gospel martyr, wasn't he? Or you could say the first one after Jesus. Jesus was the first one, wasn't he? The first one to be taken out. In some ways, you could argue that the prophets and the messengers of God, I think, were martyrs in the Old Testament. But in terms of a New Testament gospel thing, Stephen's the second. And you know what? Many more have followed. Many, many more. Because when you get in the way of evil, it often kills you to get you out of the way. That's what it does. The man on the right, some of you would recognise him as Graham Staines. A movie about uh, the martyrdom of him and his two sons uh, came out just, uh, just recently. It's been 20 years since he was martyred. Just over. He was born on the sunny coast. 
He went, he went to India and he worked with lepers from 1965 as a missionary. And some Hindu groups in India alleged that during this time he had lured or forcibly coerced many Hindus into believing in the Christian faith. On the night of the 22nd of January 1999, he attended a jungle camp. There was a gathering that had come together there. The village where the camp was located was right on the border between the tribal villages of Murrab, I can't even say this, Mayurban Haj and Keon Char. There you go. He was travelling to the village with his sons. They were on a break from their school. And they decided to take a break from the journey towards the jungle camp and elected to spend the night in Manor Harper, sleeping in the vehicle due to the severe cold at the time. His wife and daughter did not accompany them in the journey, having decided to remain behind in the town that they were in. A mob of about 50 people, armed with axes and other implements, attacked the vehicle while Graham Staines and his sons were fast asleep and set the station wagon alight, trapping them inside and burning them to death. The word, the word is that they actually tried to get out, but they weren't permitted to get out of the car. Would you make Stephen your hero? I wonder if you hesitate at that moment. I wonder if you hesitate because of the way it ends. Is that the deal breaker for you? Maybe at the start when I said, do you want, is Stephen one of your heroes? Because you put him on your list of heroes. Maybe you went, yes. And now you just go, oh, geez, I don't know. I'm not sure. Tapping out at the, um, at the hero thing at this point. Like, I'm, I'm not... Nah. I'll take, it, I'll take the other stuff. Give me the grace, the power, the fill with the spirit, the looking after widows. I'll take everything except the death. I'll take, I'll, take all, I'll take the rest of it. And some of us even start to wriggle around a little bit at this point. And we start thinking about, oh, look, Stephen, like if, if I could have just had 10 minutes with Stephen, I, I would have pulled him aside and said, but do you, like, do you think we, maybe you could have actually done that a little bit differently and maybe you could have been a little bit nicer and a little bit more nuanced and, and careful about how you kind of pinged people at the end of it, you know, and we start to think some of these things. And, and, and here's a couple of questions that I think that when you start to wriggle on this thing, here's a couple of the questions I reckon you start to ask. One of them is this, did Stephen make the right decision? Did he have to say what he said? Some of us just go, man, like if he didn't say what he said, he could have been, he could have preached the gospel for another 30 years maybe. Like don't, just don't, man, like seriously, those last few verses, Stephen, you just, man, if, if, if he was meeting up with a speech writer, he'd be like, just drop it, right? Just cut that bit, right? That's really going to get you in trouble because they were probably with you most of the time when you were talking about the Old Testament stuff. You know, like, go underground, man. You don't have to be that public about it. Go underground and go guerrilla warfare. 
You know, you doesn't have to be kind of full frontal attack. You can't die on every hill, Stephen. Are you sure this is the one that you want to die on? But we can see from the scripture that he nailed it. He nailed it. He did what was right. His stirring the pot was right. It was a good and right thing to do. Was Stephen a successful martyr? Have you got your Bibles open? You go to, can you go to Acts 8 verse 1? Because you know what we want to say at this point is we just want to go, yeah, like maybe 500 people got saved because Stephen got executed. Go to Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, maybe it happened, right? But according to the text, no one got saved. Revival didn't break out. He got taken out. And then it just gets worse after that. Was he successful? And here's, here's, the, um, here's my caution to you. Be careful about how you define what success is. And be careful about how you make decisions. You know, one of, one of the things about making decisions, I don't know whether you've noticed this, I'm sure that if you've lived long enough, you will have noticed this, there's some situations that you get in where there isn't the possibility of a good outcome. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It doesn't matter what you choose, all right? It's going to go bad. And that's not being pessimistic. That's just, you just get in those situations. And yet one of the things you find when you get into those kind of situations is you realise how much a successful outcome impacts the way that you make your decision. Like the goodness of a decision is measured by whether it gets you a good outcome. But sometimes there's just things that you, you're going to make a really, really good decision and it's going to go down the S-bend after that. It's kind of like parenting, right? I don't know whether you've, people have been parents or are parents. I should say people who are parents. Have you noticed that you can get parenting right and it, and it doesn't work? Has anyone ever noticed that? You can actually do well and do things the way that you should have done it, but it doesn't go well and the kids don't respond. It's because there's more variables than just you doing the right thing. Just be careful of making decisions too much based on getting a successful outcome because you could make a decision that gets a good outcome but it actually could have been a wrong decision right I think Stephen is a very successful martyr and I think that's the way that Luke tells the story in uh, in Acts chapter 7 he is a very successful martyr and this is the obvious question isn't it Could you do it?
In Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Another section of scripture later on in the New Testament says that we are called to overcome evil with good. But what if it means you're overcoming evil with good means that you get overcome with evil? In a physical sense, could you do it? Or would you fold? At the crunch moment, you know I would just annoy him. It's a heavy question, isn't it? Uh, many of you probably have been in churches long enough to have heard someone say, what if someone busted into your church and they had a machine gun and they said, everyone who loves Jesus is going to get shot. What would you do? Everyone who doesn't, says they don't love Jesus, can leave. Could you do it? I think you could. I think you could. I think you could do it. I think you would do it. You know, if, if you love Jesus and you've laid down your life for him, then this direction is just not a big deal. Isn't it? It's not a big deal. You know, some of you are kind of hesitating a little bit, but there's some of you I know. I know there's going to be some of you in this room just going, I would do it. And maybe under the palm, who knows what would happen, right? Let's just be honest about that. That could just, it could be weird stuff. But my intention right now is, no, I'm, I'm in for Jesus. I've given up my life. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. And I'm in for him. And let me tell you, let me give you another reason why I reckon you could do it. There's a grace that you, you don't get until you get there. All right? It just is. There's a grace that you don't get until you get there. So you're sitting here and you're just going, oh, I don't know whether I could do it. I'm just going, well, no, I'm thinking the same thing. I don't know whether I could do it. You know why? Because you don't have the grace that you need in that moment to actually nail it. And if you got in that moment, you know what God would do? He would give you all the gifts and all the help that you needed to nail the moment. You could do it. So don't get tricked by the fact that you're sitting here and the mercies and grace that God's prepared for you are not here for you to do something like that on this particular day because it's not happening right now. His mercies are new every morning. There's a provision for the moment. There's another reason. Because you've got the same spirit. All right? You've got the same spirit. If you love Jesus, his energy and his power is in you and you live for something bigger than comfort. Jesus' death has paved the way for you to have a different kind of life. The essence of selflessness and other-centeredness lives inside of you. Now, here's the catch, right? I shouldn't say it exactly like that because it's not really a catch. Here's the qualification. The only 
risk, I think, that exists that you wouldn't do it is if you haven't fully thrown in your lot with Jesus. If you're double-minded and you get in a situation like that, you're probably going to go for self-preservation. Probably. That would be the safe bet. If you're about self-preservation, you'll probably fold. You'll probably choose yourself over trouble. Here's another way to ask the question, can you do it? Are you into Jesus this much? Are you into Jesus as much as Stephen is? When it comes to death, we prefer self-preservation. That's what humanity says. This is what Jesus says. When it comes to death, I prefer your preservation. See that? Jesus, Jesus goes to the cross, an actual event in history, and he has the opportunity to bail and to not go through to the end. And do you know something? If he does that, you are custard. Apologies to custard lovers. You're custard, right? You just are. That's kind of the end of the section. There is no hope for you outside of Jesus. So what does he, what does he do? He gets put under the pump. He goes in front of the Sanhedrin. He gets beaten up and he gets executed on a Roman cross. And he throws... I mean, you hear this often in football matches. Like they say, someone threw self-preservation out the window. Well, there is no better example of someone throwing self-preservation out, out the window than Jesus, is there? He throws it all out the window. Why? To save people. It's an other-centred sacrifice. That's the energy that energises you. That is the life that fills your bones. That is a spirit that lives inside of you. I wonder if the uh, music team could come up. See, Jesus, Jesus says that anyone who comes after me must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. They must die to themselves. It needs to be over. You know, we might hesitate with uh, Stephen and just kind of go, like I'm with your man on the hero thing until I get to the bit where you're getting stoned and then I'm just hesitating a bit. Well, you know what? If you call yourself a Christian, you're following someone who got executed. You're following someone who radically got in the way of evil. And for a time, at least it appeared that evil overcame him. It looked like that, didn't it? It looked like it won. 
It was all part of his sneaky plan. It was all part of his sneaky plan. And I would ask you this morning, are you divided? Do you have a divided heart? How much self-preservation goes on inside of you? What are the things that Jesus is calling you to do and you're just not doing them because you just don't want to take the risk? Or you just want to do your own thing for a while? I just want to do what I want to do for a while. My uh, old man used to say that uh, there's a lot of Christians who've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church and they're not happy in either. And I think there's some truth in that, right? You just don't, you don't... Some of you, it's like, you just... You just feel guilty about stuff. Because God's calling you to do stuff and you're not doing it. You're double-minded. And echo the words of the Old Testament. Choose you this day whom you will serve. (laughs) Serve God or don't. But don't stay in the middle. And if you're double-minded, say sorry. It's a good, really good place to start. It's not that hard, really. Just say sorry and say, give me an undivided heart like the psalmist does. Amen? And then, and this is a call for everyone. It's not, it's not just for you. This is for me too. Then tell him that you'll follow him anywhere. anywhere because that's the deal there isn't another deal on the table there's no other offer on the table that's the offer be disconnected from him and live forever without him in misery or die join him in death and dying to yourself and follow him wherever he wants to take you